0: Welcome back to another episode of Palm Peeps. We've had some great episodes recently that we've really enjoyed. Our fellows case files as always, some top consults and our new initiative, our rapid fire journal clubs. So we hope that you've all been listening and enjoy them. Today, we're excited to bring you another new type of special episode. We're joined by author, Dr. Hannah Wunsch and we'll discuss her book, The Autumn Ghost, how the battle against the polio epidemic revolutionized modern medical care. Monty, are you ready for the day?
1: Hey, furf. Yeah, definitely ready. And um, as you said, definitely counting down the days for this episode. I'm really excited about it. And in Autumn Ghost, we were all reminded about how the polio epidemic changed the world and really critical care medicine as we know it today. So as you said, first, I'm um, so we're excited to welcome Dr. Hannah Wunsch to the show today. And to give her a proper introduction, Hannah is a professor of anesthesiology and critical care medicine at the University of Toronto. And she's also a practicing intensivist at Sunnybrook Hospital. Hannah completed her medical training at Washington University School of Medicine and received a master's degree in epidemiology from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. She then completed her anesthesia and residency and critical care fellowship at Columbia University in New York first. So y'all have some relation with that and was on faculty there for six years prior to moving to Toronto. The Autumn Ghost is her first book, but Hannah, we're hoping that there are many more in your future and it's a true honor to welcome you on to Palm
2: today. Thanks so much. It's a real privilege to be here. I'm really excited to get to to talk to all, all of you.
0: Yeah, the privilege is all ours. Um, we can't wait to talk more about this amazing story. I feel like it was um, I was just ready from getting through the COVID pandemic to dive into a new pandemic and epidemic. And this book came out at the right time for me to read it and really enjoy and uh, delve into all the lessons that were learned. Before we go any forward, just our standard disclaimer, as a reminder, this podcast is not meant for specific medical advice, and the views expressed today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers. So before we discuss a little bit more about the content of the book or the details, Hannah, we'd love to have you share what led you to writing it and what inspired you uh, to think about the polio story and write Autumn Ghost.
2: Yeah, so I mean, in some ways, this was a project that was like more than 20 years in the making, um, in that I was always kind of interested in science writing and interested in the kind of challenges of science communication, I actually thought about going into science writing, but then, you know, veered off into medical school. And um, along the way, I stumbled on this story in a book called The Rise and Fall of Modern Medicine by James Le Fanu. And I read it actually when I was doing my master's degree in London 20 years ago. And there's one chapter in the book, which is about this polio epidemic. And each chapter is kind of some important 20th century event. So it's, you know, penicillin and, and Fleming and that sort of thing. And then there was this one chapter that was about this moment in medicine. History that I'd never heard about this kind of slightly obscure sounding polio epidemic in Copenhagen in 1952, but that this was featured as one of the important moments. And then I ended up going into first anesthesia and then critical care, and I, you know I realized it was the origin story for my specialty, and it's actually a really dramatic story. So it's one of those things where you know a lot of innovations and change in medicine happen because sort of someone's really plugging away at trying to figure out the answer to something. And this was one of those kind of crazy serendipitous moments in time when it all kind of came together. And so it was just always on on my radar. And then to be perfectly honest, I was promoted to full professor and people kept saying, oh, what do you get with that? And, you know, do you get tenure? No. Do you get a raise? No. Kind of what, what do you actually get? And I sort of stepped back and thought, what do I get? And I thought, well, you know what? I think I get The opportunity to maybe explore things that are very related to what we do all day, every day, but are maybe slightly different. And for me, that was getting to write and research and write about the history of the field. And so that's how it all started.
1: Thank you so much, Hannah. And, and, you know, you talked a little bit about, you know, Copenhagen, and you said the story, um, you know, you begin with Vivi Ebert, a 12-year-old girl in Copenhagen in August 1952, who developed fever, headache, paralysis, and difficulty breathing, kind of all the classic signs of polio that would ultimately lead to her death. And Hannah, you mentioned in your text, you know, at this time, modern medicine was failing and polio was winning, and this was in the 1950s. And I'm wondering if you could review a little bit about the epidemiology and the impact of the polio epidemic. Epidemic for those who may need a refresher or, you know, maybe hearing it for the first time. And were there really any key events that marked its
2: progression? Yeah. So I don't know about you, but I certainly didn't learn about polio in medical school. And I felt like, you know, my, main knowledge of polio was it was a disease we didn't have to worry about and it caused paralysis and like kind of that's where it ended. Um, So I had to do a really deep dive into understanding the epidemiology of polio. And it turns out it's a fascinating disease because they think it was endemic uh, for centuries, but it didn't actually cause paralysis and sort of rear its head until the late 1800s. And it's one of these sort of reverse sanitation stories where they think as people didn't get exposed in the first six months or year of life when they had passive immunity from mother's uh, milk, that then as the sanitation got better and that didn't happen and they were exposed later, that's when you start seeing polio occurring. And it's, um, it's, it's oral fecal transmission. So it really is about sort of hand washing and, and that sort of thing. And so you start seeing these sporadic cases of paralysis occurring in the late 1800s. And then there's a, um, there's a big outbreak in Sweden at the turn, uh, right before the turn of the century. There's another outbreak in Vermont, actually, uh, which is the first kind of big US outbreak where people realize this is a kind of separate disease um, that seems to be causing paralysis. And people. And then you start seeing these waves and it's one of these kind of uh, crazy diseases where they, well, first of all, they had trouble figuring out that it was oral fecal transmission for a long time. They they didn't understand that. And then on top of that, it just seemed to kind of pop up in weird places every summer. And in the U S it was called the, the, uh, the summer plague in Scandinavian countries. Nobody quite knows why, but in more Northern latitudes, you would get, um, the cases occurring more in the fall, hence the name of my book, The Autumn Ghost, because in those countries, it did tend to occur more in the fall. And so over the course of the early 20th century, you see progressive waves of polio each summer, some worse than others, some more deadly than others, some causing more paralysis than others. And and the other thing that's interesting is that over time, the a- average age of People increased who got polio, so it started out being called infantile paralysis at one point because it was mostly babies and small children. And then, as you creep into the 30s, 40s, and the early 50s, uh, in fact, by the epidemic I'm writing about in 1952, almost half of the patients that were being cared for were over the age of 15. So it's a really interesting disease epidemiologically, and of course, then the, you know the vaccine does come in in 1955, and so you get this kind of precipitous drop in no more research on the disease. But that's sort of the story of it. And then the, the key moments, I think, for thinking about polio are the iron lung, which gets introduced in 1928, which is negative pressure ventilation. And that's a game changer, because that's the first time you've got a machine that can support people breathing, uh, or really any organ support of any kind. And then you get this moment in 1952, which is kind of the next game changer, which is the, the moment when they figure out how to do positive pressure ventilation to support people with polio. And then you've got 1955, which is the vaccine. So those are kind of the three big years for polio.
1: Oh, that's awesome, Hannah. Thank you for sharing and kind of giving that perspective. And as you're talking about this, I'm just thinking like how this disease was, you know, specifically for you with your training, with your master's, you know, with combining it with critical care and anesthesia, you know, how meaningful this is for you and like so many others um, in the field today. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more kind of what you learned and kind of, you know, through writing the book, how did the, the fear and anxiety of polio really affect people's daily lives and behaviors during the epidemic? Were there certain things that, that were noted um, that you can share with us?
2: Yeah. So it's one of those things where there's so many parallels to COVID in terms of the kind of the crazy things that people do when they're scared. Um, you know, when you think back to washing all of our uh, groceries and like leaving it out on the doorsteps for days on end to, and all of the things we did. And, you know, you kind of, you laugh at it and you laugh at what people did with polio, but you know they were scared. People didn't understand how it was transmitted. And so you get all kinds of behaviors. And if you talk to anyone who lived through the polio era, so many people will talk about not being able to go to swimming pools, uh, movie theaters being closed, sort of all the same things that we saw with COVID. And then also kind of crazier things like all the windows being shut in the middle of summer because people didn't know how it was transmitted or scared that it was through the air. And so they literally wouldn't open the windows in this boiling hot house in the middle of summertime. In the 1916 epidemic, which is the big one that happened in New York, first big one, you see them, they slaughtered like tens of thousands of cats and dogs because they thought maybe it was transmitted by these animals. They, you know, would burn library books that were returned from houses where polio had uh, been noted, so kind of any and all craziness that you know we've we've seen <laughs> occurred with polio, but of course you know it was a real fear, and um, I think it's it's a disease where the sequelae was so obvious and so life changing if it did hit that it really created fear in some ways out of proportion to the number of cases that occurred every year, but completely understandable, of course, in terms of uh, it, it being such a scary virus.
0: Yeah, and certainly understandable. And I feel like the the way that people are impacted and the way it influences everyone's fear and perception of it certainly creates some of the environment where you start getting some of the medical uh, innovations and interventions that you start talking about in your book. For those who haven't read the book yet, we highly recommend you go out and check it out. I love the way it sort of breaks it down into phases and it explores sort of the different tendrils that come together to uh, allow some of the innovations to happen. Uh, and certainly, as you said, when I learned about polio medical school, it was we have a vaccine and that's the most popular story. But there is a lot of thoughts and interventions and innovations that happened before that. So I was hoping you could talk about some of the initial medical treatments uh, and interventions that were used early on in the pandemic and epidemic before we had the vaccine that sort of took over.
2: Yeah, so as mentioned, the first one is the iron lung. 1928 at Boston Children's Hospital, or really at the School of Public Health, they figure out this concept, which had been kind of percolating as many of these concepts are for you know a long time before they made it workable. Um, but that really proliferated and became the mainstay of treatment. Now, the problem with it was that if you had bulbar polio, it was really useless. It was still 90% mortality if uh, you were having difficulty with secretions. And they didn't really understand that concept of protecting the airway. Um, so- So- it was great for certain forms of respiratory failure, but not for others. Um, They also had things, they had literally rocking beds where they would strap someone onto this bed that would like flip them upside down and use gravity to move their diaphragm. And that was considered sort of, uh, you know, a way to help someone who has had some respiratory paralysis, not very successfully, although um, supposedly people slept really well in it, which like, I'd love to see one of these because it just sounds so crazy. Um, And then they had kind of mini iron lungs, which um, they strapped over the chest and would do a sort of a, a kind of Partial version of negative pressure ventilation that was really only useful as kind of augmentation for people who had very mild paralysis. And they also had uh, immunoglobulin, so IVIG, essentially, that was being trialed both as treatment and also as potential prevention. But that was limited really by uh, access to IVIG and um, the fact that you never knew where these epidemics would pop up. So logistically, it was really challenging to use. And it was it was tested in RCT, but never really rolled out. So that's where you were in 1952, when you get to this epidemic that happens in Copenhagen. And actually, they only had one iron lung and six of what they called the cuirass respirators, which was the kind of ones over the chest. And they recognize, though, that having more iron lungs wasn't the answer. They didn't know what was, but they knew that with this super high mortality from bulbar polio, that just getting iron lungs, even if they could have, wasn't going to solve their problems. And so that's when they bring in this anesthesiologist, Bjorn Ibsen, who's sort of the hero of the story or one one of the heroes of the story, who's the one who recognizes that these patients have CO2 retention and that if you could just Give them an airway and ventilate them in kind of modern techniques that he used in the operating room. That that was going to be the solution to their problems, and uh, and it was, except they didn't have ventilators. So this is when it gets exciting because they turn to the medical students of Copenhagen and uh, start having them hand ventilate the patients twenty four hours a day, which I think is all of our nightmares, right, uh, right there. <laughs> uh, and you know, I learned about this story before COVID, before this was something that we could even really comprehend could happen the idea that you wouldn't have a ventilator, but obviously it became a little more real feeling when uh, when we had COVID.
0: Yeah, yeah, it certainly did. Uh, and things that sound like they're only dystopian came back to the forefront. I, you lo- used a word of percolating and I really like that. Um, I love the way the book explores, like for example, Dr. Ibsen and how he's learning and adapting these new skills and then has this sort of tool set to apply to this new situation. It was a very um, interesting way to see the developments.
2: Yeah, I do think it's just important to, like, to acknowledge, you know, you're trying to make the story kind of clear and simple and, and linear. And of course, like, like all of these things, like there's people doing all kinds of stuff in the background and experimenting and, you know, whatever you think is uh, something that's like new and for the first time never really is. So, <laughs> so that's always like to keep in mind that, um, that although this is definitely a turning point and in a really important moment, you know, other people were experimenting with some of the same concepts.
0: It's a good disclosure. When Autumn Ghosts the movie comes out, then we'll know that there's other things in the background as well. Well, you did lead up. We want to talk more about uh, mechanical ventilation. Of course, that's something that we're all very interested in uh, here, but we can't really have this podcast without talking about the vaccine. Um, So we're hoping you could comment on just tell us about how the vaccine impacted the epidemic. And how when you were starting to research it, uh, you talk about a lot of things that aren't the vaccine, but so how this story is more than just that discovery.
2: So the polio vaccine is like what everybody thinks of if you say polio. And um, I definitely wanted to tell a story that was not the polio vaccine, because I felt like there were all these other things that went along with with polio that were important. But the vaccine's always there in the background, because of course, that's sort of the holy grail. It's like, let's just get rid of this disease completely. It ha- That story actually has been told amazingly by others in books, you know, that really trace the vaccine development. And, and they're intertwined, because the whole time they're trying to figure out how to treat polio, they're also at the same time trying to figure out how to prevent polio. And so that is why, you know, I felt like I couldn't tell the story of the development of mechanical ventilation and intensive care without also telling the story, at least sort of on the side of the development of the vaccine. You know, the contrast is really remarkable between the decades it took to come up with the polio vaccine versus the, you know, very, very short time with the COVID vaccine. and that's where you see the parallels really break down uh, because it is just a huge difference in terms of the acceleration that occurred with COVID. But the vaccine, you know, really ended research into polio and into developing ways to treat patients with polio. Um, so it is a weird, disease to to learn about because there is this just dramatic end point. Now that isn't to say that polio isn't still out there. It is still endemic in Afghanistan and Pakistan. There's still wild type polio in those two countries. So we're not totally out of the woods in terms of seeing the end of polio, but certainly, you know, I'm sure I can probably pretty safely say that none of us <laughs> in this discussion have treated a case of polio.
1: Hannah, as you were and Dave were kind of talking about what you remember from polio. I mean, I you know Dave said he remembers a vaccine, you were saying positive pressure. I feel like what really resonates with me was really how the medical students were. Um, and you you have this chapter right of student ventilators. So that's really what I I was remembering, too. So interesting to see how we kind of pick up different pieces of of the polio epidemic. And Slightly unrelated, but related to this. I was talking with a colleague yesterday who it was not related to the book, but I know he's read your book um, and has had great things to say about it, but was just talking about how, you know, he helped lead a curriculum for medical students during COVID to basically have them replace RTs on the floor so that The respiratory therapists could be kind of focused in the ICUs where they were needed the most. So a lesson of the day is medical students are still can still be considered the heroes.
2: Yeah, what's interesting is the different in different hospitals, the different approach to what medical students can and could or could not do. You know, and so here you have this epidemic where they're just thrown in no regard for their safety, essentially, because polio is transmissible disease um, and just told start ventilating. And then COVID, there are clearly some hospitals where they were really utilized. But, you know, I also heard stories of other hospitals where they really weren't allowed to be used. um, And they were basically told, stay home. And so it is fascinating the different experiences, depending on the kind of attitude in in different places about their risk and also their utility.
1: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Think, Hannah, after reading your book, I know, I mean, Dave and I were really kind of loved how you shared and created the story about the evolution of modern critical care medicine and you know, mechanical ventilation, as we talked about, and that's gonna resonate with a lot of people. But I'm really interested to hear, we've talked about the innovation before, but Hannah, what are kind of key components or elements that um, are needed for innovation in medicine to occur?
2: So, you know, I've thought a lot about this with this book because it really is about innovation in medicine. That is the core. And One of the things I came away with is just that every moment of innovation is different in terms of what goes into it and what's needed. This is an interesting moment of innovation because it's sort of, it's not pre-planned in any way. You know, no one's, No one's out there say was out there saying like we need to find a new way to ventilate people, right? It was like it just sort of was this moment of desperation, and so I do count desperation as a key piece sometimes of innovation. Um, And to me, the one that is universal that I think is a really the one that is applicable now that can be taken from this book is the idea of listening to people with different expertise and backgrounds. And, you know, they bring in this anesthesiologist, Bjorn Ibsen. And first of all, anesthesia is barely a specialty in Denmark at this point. It's literally been recognized for a year or two. And he's a real outsider. Nobody in anesthesia, treats patients with polio. He's never treated a patient with polio. And so I think that it's just, it's such a lesson in saying, okay, even though this person, sort of from the tick boxes, doesn't tick any of the boxes that suggest he would be useful in this moment based on their knowledge and understanding of things, in fact, kind of holds this key precisely because. He's not. He hasn't learned the received wisdom. You know, they basically were like, "Oh, everybody's dying of overwhelming virus in the brain. That's what's killing them." And he's able to look at these people and see something different. Um, And I think that that is uh, just the the most important piece. Is and it's a kind of equity, diversity, inclusion piece, right? Which is that you never know who's going to have an interesting idea and that a different perspective is often what it takes and you don't know who that's going to be and so that i think is what i've taken away mostly in terms of thinking about future ideas and innovation uh so many of the other pieces are serendipity and kind of right people in the right place at the right time and or sometimes brute force. You know, someone goes at something and says, right, this is, we we need a new vaccine for X and everybody hammers away at it. Right. So, so there are so many different ways that innovation occur, but that to me is the, the one that feels universal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that is such a great lesson, Hannah. And I also think to add to that, I feel like an, another person made a similar point recently. It's like, not only do you have to listen to opinions from all all over but rarely is the person who created the problem or has been uh or is behind the problem that can solve the problem right so sometimes you always need do really need to bring in somebody else who has other expertise or another viewpoint um which is really fascinating so we'd love to hear more uh, in detail that w- you discussed and learned about the evolution of invasive mechanical ventilation and this sort of interesting uh, pearl about possible return to some of the principles that we moved past of negative pressure ventilation. Uh, so if you could share with us, that'd be great.
2: So what's really cool is you see this explosion in ventilator development. Now, ventilators did actually exist Before 1952, they existed in a few operating rooms as people realized that if you're going to sit there and hand ventilate a patient during an operation, it makes it hard as an anesthesiologist to do much else. And so uh, in Sweden, actually, they developed ventilators. And then there were some in the United States, possibly a few elsewhere. There were actually none in Denmark in 1952 at this particular moment. Uh, And you see just Enormous development starting. They initially called them uh, mechanical students because they were literally replacing the physical students. And one thing that's interesting to note from the patient perspective is that not all the patients who were ventilated by hand were happy to be switched over. And I think that's a really Interesting point, which is that they found comfort in having someone sitting there with them. They're totally understandable, and so you assume that having you know someone, something, a machine that's not going to fall asleep on you um, would be would feel safer. But for many, they didn't feel safer when they were switched over. That's just sort of an aside, but you you see this incredible explosion in technology of ventilators, uh, and the list is endless of the different ventilators that get developed. Interestingly, there's some key pieces that some of which have stayed with us, right? So some of them were volume controlled, Some of them were pressure controlled. One thing that some of the earlier ventilators had was that they actually had uh, both an inspiratory piece and an expiratory piece. So they actually, it was not passive expiration. And so- you see everybody kind of tinkering with this, then of course, peep comes in and things like that. And John West, of course, writes about how the 1952 epidemic becomes this sort of turning point in people realizing that nobody really understood respiratory physiology at the bedside. And that along with ventilators, you get this explosion and interest in understanding of respiratory physiology. And blood gases also come out of uh, the same epidemic in 1952, as they realize that they need to figure out a way to monitor uh, what's going on in the the body with the ventilation and how the two are linked. And they literally hadn't put it together before this. So there's all of this stuff that happens in the kind of 1950s and 1960s. And what's interesting is, you know, you think of like what a wild west it was. I was talking with one of the early founders, Barry Fairley, of the ICU in Toronto in 1958. That's when the first ICU happens there. And he described how the ventilators had no alarms on them. And so if you turned away and the ventilator got disconnected, it was game over. And so they, they literally like rigged up uh, an inline alarm system as the first alarm of its kind to then ensure that their patients were safe. And, uh, they, you know, that's where we get like ventilator alarms from. So trying to imagine this kind of crazy period of development um, that happened. And then you get the modern era of ventilation and to your point, there's now an interest in thinking about going kind of, I don't want to say backwards because that sounds terrible, but moving forwards using older technology um, with the idea that actually, you know, negative pressure ventilation is physiologic and that maybe there is a benefit to it. in certain types of patients. Um, There are a number of studies coming out. One was just published a kind of case series looking at patients in the operating room, using it for surgeries where they need access essentially to the airway. And there's a lot of surgery going on in and around the mouth as a way to augment ventilation without having to actually tube someone. And so I think we're going to see more of this and it, it may be a combination that people approach people use of both positive and negative together to try to reduce the amount of pressure needed uh, from our standard ventilators. But it may also be, you know, augmenting just normal respiration in patients who are maybe slightly fatigued. And of course, our technology has gotten better for how to kind of strap these things on people without it um, becoming incredibly uncomfortable. There's, I know, some interest in the idea that maybe the augmentation needs to be more on the abdomen than in the chest, because it's actually the diet diaphragmatic piece that's important to augment. So it's an exciting time. I think it will be something we'll start to see trickling into practice in the next, I don't know, five, 10 years. That's my my thought, but uh, we'll see what happens. But I think we're all grasping for anything right, that gets us away from standard positive pressure ventilation, because although it's been a lifesaver and it really hasn't changed that much in 70 years. Uh, and I was... In COVID, you know, kind of at the bedside, knowing the story from 1952, knowing what Bjorn Ibsen had done, knowing the ICO he'd set up in 1953, and thinking, really, what we're doing is pretty much exactly the same as they were doing back in that period. Uh, not much has changed in that regard. So, uh, anyway, exciting to, to see what comes in the future, but I think we will see a return to some negative pressure ventilation in clinical practice.
1: Thanks, Hannah. Yeah, we're going to, and, and like as you said, in five or 10 years, we're going to say we had you on Plum Peeps and Hannah called it. There's going to be the return of negative pressure ventilation. <laughs> yeah, but that, that'll that be interesting to see. And Hannah, I, d- I mean, I think you do such a fascinating job of kind of bringing the stories and the pictures that you have in Autumn Ghosts and really taking us back to the 1950s to see, you know, what it's like and, you know, have us relate like we're actually there. But I, I want us to also remember, you alluded to some of this earlier, you know, what are some of the modern day impacts of polio and probably something a lot of people don't think about. But I'm wondering if for our listeners today, Hannah, if you would mind just kind of talking about, you know, post-polio syndrome and the care for these patients. Um, I know we don't see it that often, but I was actually on service a couple of weeks ago, one of our patients um, that was in his one-liner. So it was a little bit interesting. We didn't have too much time to talk about it, but obviously found a little bit of time to, to bring in some teaching for that point. But just interested if you, if you could share anything about that.
2: Uh, for me, this was a, a real opportunity to learn because I started interviewing patients who had had polio in 1952 in this particular epidemic in, in Copenhagen, and almost all of them would talk about their current battle with post polio syndrome. And I was really, to your point, you know, we do occasionally hear about it, see it, but it's really not on the radar. Uh, and so I really wasn't familiar with it. And it really impacts. People's lives, and it it's tough because you know because polio the vaccine comes in 1955, you have a dwindling population of polio survivors in in developed countries, and so it is a dwindling population who are battling this, and so they feel frustrated because there's not a lot of sort of pressure to um, to research it. But it's you know, and it is one of these things where it's a diagnosis of exclusion where they develop. Weakness often in the limbs that were paralyzed when they were young, or if they had respiratory paralysis, uh, weakness in respiration. And uh, they also, though, get fatigue and pain and sort of other weird symptoms that, you know, kind of a la long COVID, you know, kind of uh, make it frustrating to, to pinpoint. But it does seem pretty clear if you talk to them that many of them are dealing with something that clearly is related to, you know, polio. They had the the working theory, I mean, there's a lot. Of theories about what causes it, whether it's still polio in the system somewhere, whether it's some sort of uh, autoimmune process. But I think the predominant theory is that it's kind of a, a fatigue of the neurons that have survived and kind of done the job of other neurons that have been killed off when polio hit, um, and that it's kind of a metabolic overload in a sense. Um, so uh, it's also frustrating for them because as kids, Uh, Or or adults if they got polio as adults they were told to like push 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 with physical therapy to get strength back and now it's the opposite it's it's easy for them to get over fatigued uh, very quickly if they overdo their uh, rehab or their exercise and so it's very frustrating because their whole mindset has to change Um, and so you know I think it's important for us to be aware of it and I think. I keep sort of scrolling back now in my head, wondering about some of the patients where, for instance, they maybe unexpectedly were difficult to wean from a ventilator or unexpectedly had a respiratory complication after surgery. And you know, we don't ask people if they had polio as a child. Um, some of them wouldn't even know, but a lot of them, if you ask them, can tell you but they don't think it's important uh, for their, you know, current care. A lot of them, uh, a lot of them do now. They're starting to get, you know, educated in in the concerns of post polio syndrome. But it does. It makes me wonder how often we've missed it um, as a cause of difficulty with with weakness and respiratory failure in the ICU at times. Um, so it's made me much more aware of it, and and just polio in general. Um, Having been researching and writing about polio, people come out of the woodwork with the number, you know, a parent who had polio, a sibling who had polio, they had polio. It's kind of everywhere if you start asking about it. And uh, I've been shocked at how many families it's impacted in some way when I start discussing it with people. And so I do think there's more of it there than we think. And because post-polio is sort of insidious and hard to diagnose, there's probably more of it there than than we think. Um, so whenever I give talks about this book to medical audiences, I make sure to include a chunk about post polio syndrome because obviously that that's really the piece that's relevant for people now in terms of the care they're providing. And so I think it's important to educate people as much as possible so they're aware of it.
1: For sure. And I loved how you said, I mean, I think it's such a practical way to remember it, though, like fatigue of neurons that survived. I've never heard it post polio syndrome be referred to that. But I think it's so insightful to kind of hear that. So thank you for sharing that. And as one follow up uh, question as well, you mentioned some of this earlier, right? Because not everyone's vaccinated. There are people um, have unvaccinated populations. Have you encountered any of that or aware of any acute cases of polio? Uh,
2: I mean, I personally have not dealt with any acute cases of polio or uh, had the discussions with individuals about vaccination. But of course, there was the one case that occurred in New York uh, now about a year ago. Um, and that was, of course, in an unvaccinated individual. It's a complicated one to explain to kind of non-medical people uh, just because it was vaccine derived. So it was the oral vaccine that someone was given in another country where they're still using that vaccine. It is a live attenuated vaccine, so it had mutated back in you know a tiny portion of cases. And then, you know, once excreted and around somebody who uh, is unvaccinated can cause paralysis. And that's what happened in this case. There have been cases, not just in New York, there was a case in in Israel, and uh, there is now tracking of wastewater in a number of places to um, kind of get a sense of whether or not polio is circulating. The vaccine-derived polio is circulating. Um, There are cases still of wild-type polio in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Those are the two countries where it hasn't been fully eradicated. Um, Um, And that is definitely an ongoing effort, huge amounts of time and money and energy um, and lives put into trying to do that because it is uh, definitely dangerous for those who are volunteering to do that vaccination work. It's, you know, they're not safe areas they're going into, and there have been a number of deaths of of vaccinators. Um, So we're so close to eradicating polio. You know, it'd be amazing to be able to put smallpox and polio in the same sentence, (laughs) which we do anyway, but, but we probably shouldn't, but it would be great. It would be amazing to be able to celebrate the end of actual wild type polio, but we definitely still have a ways to go.
0: Yeah. Fingers crossed. It'll be sometime in our lifetime. Well, this was an amazing talk. We really appreciate your time and sharing with us. We, we highly recommend that everyone who's listening uh, dive in and read the full book because it was really enlightening and, and actually just a really fun read. Fun read is a weird way to say it, but very well written. So it goes quickly, which is very fun. Um, we like to end each episode with a takeaway. And so today, Hannah, we would love for you to share with us if there's any specific messages or takeaways or things that you learned from the whole process of writing the book and having it out that you'd like our listeners to take with them.
2: Yeah, I have more than one takeaway. I get, well, many takeaways after this journey, which was many years. Um, I mean, I think just for for those in the field, I, this book is a bit of a love letter to, you know, respiratory physiology and critical care medicine. Um, there's an entire chapter on blood gas analysis, and <laughs> um, but written for the general public. And so um, while it is a love letter to our specialty, it's also very much written to try to help get the word out about what it is that we all do all day and for the general public to understand uh, and appreciate what it is that we do. And so it's very much written as narrative nonfiction. And so I hope that for listeners, they're able to share this with people. uh, I'm sure, uh, I don't know if you have the same issue where I feel like almost every day I'm correcting someone who thinks I work in the emergency room. Um, and no matter how many times I explain what it is I do. And so I'm hoping that this book, because it's sort of so vivid and, and takes people through this kind of process of what it is to put someone on a ventilator, um, that that might actually help people to, to fully understand what it is that is provided with uh, intensive care. Um, so there's that. And then uh, I think also, you know, I, I approached this book... Uncertain whether I could write it, just because I've never done anything like this before, and it felt daunting. Uh, and it really was uh, an incredible experience. I mean, for me, I found that I just absolutely loved the process of delving into these details and getting to meet all these incredible people. I met some of the medical students who were there in 1952. I met the children and grandchildren of the doctors. I met the patients, and um, and that was just you know it was an it was a great reminder of why we do what we do Uh, and to see, to meet these patients, you know, 70 years later and to know that they had that 70 years because of these interventions that were provided uh, is really an incredible feeling. So um, I think that it was just. It was an amazing experience. And I would just sort of urge people as a takeaway that if there's something they want to try, kind of don't be afraid of failure. That was my fear, you know, that somehow I would fail at writing this book. And then kind of thought, oh, you know, F it. (laughs) I'm going to try anyway, because I think it's such a cool topic and I want to try to do this. So, so I think that would be my takeaway is there's a lot of people in medicine who have a lot of interests. And I hope that people are able to pursue those interests and find time, whatever it is, whether they're within the field or outside the field and just uh, enjoy the process.
1: And Hannah, uh, before Farf takes us out, just uh, where can uh, people interested in getting the Autumn Ghost, where where can you direct them to get it?
2: So it should be available on sort of any of the major booksellers, Amazon, Bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, and then in some local bookstores as well. Uh, you can also request it at your library. Most libraries, even if they don't have the book, We'll usually be happy to order it if someone requests it. So readily available. It's in ebook form as well. And an audiobook version should be coming out within the next few weeks, early September.
0: Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Certainly when you're writing your next book, we want inside info and for you to come really early on in the show. Um, uh, and it was a real pleasure for both Christine and I to have you on the show.
2: Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure to share the the journey in the book with you. Thanks.
0: Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you'll join us next time. Uh, This uh, episode was written, edited, produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you in two weeks.